what hour your clock strikes. Here, it's always Halloween, and I'm always your haunted host, Luce Tomlin Brenner. Welcome to Small Frights Friday, where I share a curated collection of calls from the All Hallows Hotline and letters from the Eek Mailbag. Do you have a Halloween query or memory that you would like to share? Call the All Hallows Hotline at 802-532-DEAD. Or... You can write an eek mail to It's Always Halloween Podcast at gmail.com. If you're on social media, follow and tag us at It's Always Halloween Podcast on Instagram. This episode of It's Always Halloween is brought to you by our Patreon Ghoul Gang. These glamorous ghouls fund each and every episode, keeping us ad free, independent, and sustainable. Are you searching for a unique last-minute gift this month? Snag an annual subscription for the creeps you love or yourself and support a team of DIY creatives over corporations. Or maybe you want to gift a special thank you to your favorite haunted host? Subscribers get two months free when they become an annual patron of It's Always Halloween. Give the gift of Halloween all year round. When you become a patron of It's Always Halloween, you'll receive bonus trick-or-treat goodies like community discord access, film screenings and discussions, and bonus episodes. A new bonus Christmas ghost story by W.W. Jacobs, the author of The Monkey's Paw, just came out and another wintry chiller will be released next Friday. Each story is dramatically read by myself with original sound design by my extraordinary co-producer, Pete Burns. Another patronage perk is membership in our book club. This month, we are celebrating Shirley Jackson's birthday and taking a deep dive into her ghastly, groundbreaking novel, The Haunting of Hill House. It's not too late to join us. Pick up your physical or audio copy today and join us for our next virtual meeting on Tuesday, January 3rd at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Visit patreon.com slash it's always Halloween to learn more and sign up. You can also support the podcast by buying merch from our Redbubble. There we have teas, notebooks, stickers, prints, mugs, and so much more. You can even get a mini skirt with our podcast art on it. I mean, you would be the most fashionable person at the club in that, for sure. Or you can order a copy of our Halloween from Displaced Snail. Links to everything can be found in our show notes. So I got really fantastic feedback from our interview episode with Julie and David Stone, and many of you reached out to say that you ordered the book, It's Alive! I hope you'll call or write in to give your review when you're finished reading it. I'm really looking forward to hearing what Lanterns think of it. I love seeing an indie author get support. And as much as I adore the major spooky authors like Shirley Jackson, of course, and Stephen King and Neil Gaiman, Edgar Allan Poe, all the greats, it is important to me to highlight authors who don't have a major platform or like decades of literary hype. 
As we enter the cozier months, I'd love to hear what books you're curling up next to the hearth with. With Frankenstein and books in mind, let's jump into our first eek mail. This one has the subject line, a question from a librarian. Hello, I work as a high school librarian. Our sophomores are required to read Frankenstein, and every year there are students who really struggle with the text. Do you have any tips for reading Mary Shelley? Do you have any suggestions for YA read-alikes or books that are similar that I could include in the library for students that are interested in Frankenstein or other gothic horror stories? Thanks, Casey. Thanks for reaching out with these fantastic questions. I pulled a few things from the internet for you, and those links will be in the show notes. And the first one is a five-minute video from Ted Ed, which is very silly to say, but you know TED Talks, it's TED Education, TED Ed. It's on YouTube, and it's everything you need to know to read Frankenstein. What I love about this short video is it has really compelling animations to go with it. Very lush colors and fun little um, characters. Just, it does a great job of capturing the imagination, especially if you have students who are maybe more visual learners. I know for me, growing up, I always did my best when I had a visual and an audio component to my education. This video is neat because it also tells the watcher a little bit about Mary Shelley's background, so you get some context, which can also be really helpful when you're trying to understand an older text. Next, I'm going to share an article from Medium titled Mary Shelley, colon, The Teenager Behind Frankenstein, and this goes into that context I was just speaking of and frames the author as a teenage girl, which she was at the time. She wrote this when she was 18, but the author kind of goes into a deep dive about what was happening at that time, why she was writing this story, what it was like to be a teenager in the 19th century. This isn't exactly helpful for understanding the nuts and bolts (laughs) of Frankenstein, but It might be fun for kids to think about this not being some dusty old story that they're required to read for school, but a horror story that a teenager wrote on a getaway to an old castle with her friends. It's a quick five to ten minute read, and I think it's definitely accessible for teen readers. And the last link I'm going to share is a study guide that I found that was one of the most comprehensive, but also not boring and easy to understand. The study guide is broken up by summary, historical contexts and setting, themes, feminist interpretation, sample essay topics, and essay topic breakdown. I really liked the fact that there was a feminist reading included in this study guide. I don't know what high schools are like these days, but I would have really cherished being able to look at this story from a feminist perspective when I was a teenager, but that was (laughs) nowhere near a topic that any of my teachers were breaching at Illyria High. 
unfortunately. Some of the themes this study guide gets into are the pursuit of dangerous knowledge, sublime nature, beauty and monstrosity, and societal prejudice. Each of these sections have fairly short paragraphs breaking these more complex ideas down into bite-sized pieces that are very accessible to people who are not familiar or used to the type of language that's used in a 200-year-old novel. I really struggled with Frankenstein when I had to read it in high school, and I wanted to love it because it's Frankenstein, of course. By the time I had to read it as a sophomore, I was also totally to the brink with Stephen King novels. I had read all the Fear Street, Christopher Pike, anything scary I could get my hands on. So I was thrilled at the idea of reading a older classic horror novel, but I was almost immediately bored to tears by it and also confused by it. My teacher was not very strong in giving us context or making it interesting for a modern audience. And I also just wasn't scared and I wanted to be scared. So I was really looking at these materials from a little loose perspective and thinking what would have helped me at the time. So that's where these suggestions are coming from. Additionally, I looked up some books that and asked for some recommendations from YA friends. So I have a list of books here that I have not read, so I'm going to put that disclaimer out here. But if any lanterns out there want to weigh in on the best Frankenstein-like YA novels or gothic YA novels, please call or write in and share your recommendations or say like, oh no, that book that you recommended is crap. Don't read that. These are all secondhand recommendations, but they do look cool, and I didn't include anything that I wouldn't be interested in reading myself. First, here are some Frankenstein-inspired YA recommendations. The book Man-Made Boy by John Scovron, Marina by Carlos Ruiz Zafron, Henry Franks by Peter Adam Solomon, Mr. Creature by Chris Priestley, and the Madman's Daughter trilogy by Megan Shepard. This trilogy looked really awesome. It's three books all inspired by classic literature, classic gothic literature. The first one is called The Madman's Daughter, and it's inspired by The Island of Dr. Moreau. The second one is called Her Dark Curiosity, and it's inspired by The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And then the third book in the trilogy is called A Cold Legacy, and that's the one that is inspired by Frankenstein. Next, I have a few pure gothic wrecks. These don't necessarily have to do with Frankenstein at all. They're just within the gothic tradition. These are also YA novels. First, we have In the Shadow of the Blackbirds by Cat Winters, which I thought was a very fun name. Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea by April Genevieve Tolchke. Down Comes the Night by Alison Saft. Lake's Edge by Leibdell Clipstone. And Within These Wicked Walls by Lauren Blackwood. 
That list is in the show notes if you want to check it out. I apologize to any authors whose names I butchered. I'm definitely going to check out a couple of those because they sounded so cool. And again, please let us know, Lanterns, if you've read these or have any other recommendations for Casey's students. Lastly, I ran your question about how to read Frankenstein by my English teacher mother who loves Frankenstein and taught it for years to her high school students. She is very passionate about this book and she wrote up a short essay I'm going to share with you and all the lanterns. So perhaps you can share this episode with your students as well or maybe just this one audio snippet if you like. I present to you a passionate plea to empathize with Frankenstein's creature from Lantern Linda, my mom. Victor Frankenstein's creation is not a monster, but a creature to be pitied rather than feared. To view it with disgust is grossly unfair to it, for it is Frankenstein's ego and irresponsibility that is reprehensible. There is a monster in Mary Shelley's novel, but that monster is Victor Frankenstein. In this frame tale, or a story within a story, the reader learns as early as chapter two of Victor's personality, his fascination and curiosity about nature, and his hunger for knowledge contrasting sharply with Elizabeth's calm admiration of the beauty of nature and Henry's love of romantic tales and chivalry. Victor wholly admitted he was interested only in learning the, quote, secrets of heaven and earth. He was fascinated by the study of electricity and the role it played in galvanism or the animation of cells, particularly that of human tissue by electric stimulation. The reader learns how he was driven by his goal of unfolding the deepest mysteries of creation after the death of his beloved mother and how he isolated himself from family and friends for two years. So taken was he with his studies regarding that point when life began and the notion that one might be able to counteract death by reanimating human tissue. Once Victor mastered the ability to bestow animation upon lifeless matter, he became obsessed with creating a human being. And this is when the concept of personal responsibility becomes an issue in the novel. For Victor abandoned it completely, blaming outside forces and even fate for every event in his life after that point. Victor's continual irresponsible acts begin in chapter 4, the very moment he decided to create an eight-foot-tall human being, a, quote, creature by Shelley's description. By chapter 5, Victor is successful in his attempt to, quote, infuse life into the oversized, inanimate body, but he was repulsed when his success yielded a creature opening its yellow eyes and breathing convulsively, thereby causing its limbs to move in an agitated manner. Rather than celebrating his success and attempting to interact with the creature, albeit an abnormally large one, Victor yielded to his disgust and fear and rushed from his lab, abandoning his fully animated creation and retiring to his bedroom, hoping to sleep and forget what he had wrought if only for a time. The creature, however, 
began looking for Victor and eventually found him, whereupon it reached towards Victor, making inarticulate sounds while grinning, for it had found his father. Did Victor embrace his child as a father might, talking to it, helping it acclimate to its surroundings, and imparting necessary skills for its successful entry into the world as a parent does with his or her child? No! Rather, Victor ran from the house and passed the rest of the night pacing in the courtyard until six in the morning, after which he returned to his room, relieved to find his creation had left, and without further regard for what he had wrought. By chapter 10, the reader learns of the murder of Victor's little brother William and the wrongful accusation slash execution of a valued servant of the Frankenstein household, Justine. Both deaths preventable had Victor shared with the authorities information regarding his creature and his wanton abandonment of it. The reader learns, too, of the creature's anguish as it learned about the world into which it was so ruthlessly thrust. Four times it begged Victor to listen to it so the creature might tell its story, all while Victor declaring his hatred for it and his desire to kill it. It shares with Victor its love for the beauty of the natural world, along with its hatred for its own appearance, seen by it in a reflective pool of water, of its appreciation for the song of the forest's birds, and its disgust of its own guttural utterances, of the mesmerizing and pleasant appeal of fire, its live embers left by wandering beggars, and the physical pain it experienced after thrusting its hand into the warmth of its overwhelming loneliness and desire for human interaction being met by people who, after having seen it, ran from it screaming with fright or pelted it with rocks and sticks, of its one-sided acquaintance with the de Lacy family, whom it observed surreptitiously as the members of the family went about their daily life in the cottage, its observations of them, allowing it to learn speech and to master reading in all matters of education until the fateful day the creature realized the papers in the pockets of the clothing the creature had taken from Victor's laboratory were actually Victor's journal in which Victor not only recorded the step-by-step -step creation of the creature, but the horror with which Victor was filled upon seeing it in its finished and animated state. The creature was filled with pain after having learned through reading various books it had found in abandoned suitcases that many people believed in a God that created mankind to be beautiful and alluring, but that it was created by one Victor Frankenstein who viewed his creation as a hideous monster. When the de Lacy family finally saw the creature, all were horrified by its appearance and ran from it, thereby dashing all of its hopes for actually establishing a relationship with them, thoughts of which had provided the creature comfort for months as it had observed them. In painful desperation, the creature screamed as it burned their abandoned cottage, and feeling despised and desperate, it focused on finding Victor. The creature's negative interactions with human beings inspired it to travel only by night during the long, cold months. The appeal of nature's beauty in the spring allowed it to entertain the possibility of reaching out to human beings once again. Upon seeing a little girl fall into a rapidly moving stream, 
that saved her by jumping into the stream and dragging the child to shore, afterward picking her up and carrying her towards what it hoped was help, only to find that its kindness resulted in being shot and wounded by a man who had been with the child prior to her fall. After nursing its wound for several weeks, the creature resumed its trek towards where it believed it would find Victor Frankenstein. Unfortunately, it came upon little William Frankenstein first, though the child's identity was unknown to the creature at the time. Its thoughts of a youngster's innocence, allowing it to educate the child so a friendship might ensue, were shattered by the child struggling violently and screaming that the child's father, quote, M. Frankenstein, would punish the creature. The creature smothered the child to quiet it, the incident thereby dashing yet another attempt at human contact. The creature shares its miserable experiences after having been abandoned by Victor and appeals to him to create a female for it, someone of its ilk, a mate, with whom it could live in peace separated from the rest of the world. It is in chapter 17 that Victor finally acknowledges that he might not have behaved responsibly towards the creature the night of its creation, so he acquiesces to the creature's plea. However, Victor becomes sickened by his work on the female as he recalls his previous creation three years prior, so he destroys it. Once again, Victor puts his own needs before that of his creature. The result, of course, is horrific, as the creature, in its frustration, strangles Elizabeth after Victor and she are wed, thereby bringing to fruition its warning that it would be with Victor on Victor's wedding night if Victor deprived the creature of its companion. Elizabeth's death is yet another tragedy that Victor might have averted had he realized and accepted his moral responsibility. Truly, Mary Shelley described a, quote, monster in her novel, a monster who, when given countless opportunities, allowed ego and selfishness to drive his actions and ignore any and all responsibilities for his behavior. In all fairness, readers of Frankenstein must acknowledge referring to Frankenstein's creature as a monster is a grave disservice to it and allows Victor Frankenstein to escape much-deserved infamy. Thanks to my mom, Linda Tomlin-Brenner, for writing in that passionate essay. I feel like I understand Frankenstein better than I ever did before just reading it. So I hope that is a helpful summation for young readers who are trying to understand it for school and lanterns of all ages and backgrounds who haven't read Frankenstein or maybe just weren't that interested in it. Now you know and can perhaps even discuss it at dinner parties and pretend like you read it. <laughs> Casey, I hope this helps. Thanks so much for writing in. We would, of course, love to hear an update if anything from this episode helped your students at all. And please, fellow lanterns, chime in with your contributions. Speaking of the undead, we have a call coming in right now from beyond the grave. Hi, Lise. It's Daniel. Uh, I'm here in New York. Thank you so much for the podcast. It is so much fun. You bring so much joy to my life, to you, my speakers, every week. So thank you so much for everything that you do. I just wanted to call in to give a little bit of appreciation to 
a long sort of standing show that's been a favorite of mine, even though I fell off for a while, but The Walking Dead. Uh, of course, the theme of zombies, something that I really love about Halloween. Of course, being introduced to, at a very, very young age, the original Dawn of the Dead by Romero. I believe it was 78. And I loved this idea of zombies as political commentary. And at that time, looking at late-stage capitalism and mindless consumption, and as I've researched over time just how many times zombies have been used as allegory for really important topics, it just has really stuck with me over time, this theme of these zombies and the sort of uh, beauty of how we perceive them and the way that we can storytell using them as, as a device in many ways. So that's something that's always stuck with me, and I think it was really The Walking Dead that introduced me to this idea of a figure, a mythological figure like a zombie that could persist beyond the borders of Halloween, if you will, and this idea that, you know, within this world where we're consumed by death and walkers, that there's still themes of love and joy and resilience and courage and bravery. So, again, even though I'm sure a lot of folks have mixed emotions about a show like The Walking Dead, I gave it a shot recently, came back to it for its final season, and I must say, it's really good. It got me hooked. It feels so cinematic, so epic, and I don't know how they pulled it out, how they got the budget to do that this final season as the series comes to a finale, but it's been a joy to sort of revisit some of those themes, some of those ideas that have been so important to me in my own personal journey with Halloween and, of course, uh, with my dad, who introduced me to zombies way before I should have. So I hope that I can connect to other like-minded lanterns who love zombies as much as I do. And again, thank you so much for everything that you do. Bye-bye. Thank you for this fantastic call. I am pleased to hear I bring joy into your life because you just brought some joy into mine. Now, I used to watch The Walking Dead. I loved it when it first started. I was absolutely bowled over by the special effects and totally taken in by the characters and the story, but I did get a little worn out by it by about season five, I believe. Once they hit the prisons and then a disease like also swept through the prisons and they're like now we're sick in this other way and zombies i just got so sad and i could not stick with it but i love to hear that you returned to it and the final season was a banger that's the best especially with a long running show sometimes it can be really hard to sustain that excitement, especially a show that is driven by so much action. Now, my mom wrote in a little earlier with that Frankenstein essay, and I would be remiss if I did not know how much my mom loves this show, and we bonded over it for a long time, and I felt really bad when I stopped watching it. I just couldn't handle the violence and the sadness anymore. I got, sa I got too sad. <laughs> but before The Walking Dead, I also was introduced uh, to zombies by my mom, and we watched Night of the Living Dead together when I was younger, and I was quite disturbed by it, and then I finally, when I got a little older, I watched 
Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead when I was in college, and I completely agree with you. I really love the way in which zombies are used as different societal metaphors. I think it's interesting that the history of zombies can be traced back to slavery, which is arguably the worst thing that's ever happened in society. And I found a really interesting article in The Atlantic titled The Tragic Forgotten History of Zombies. So I thought that you, Daniel, and your fellow lanterns would enjoy hearing a little excerpt from this excellently researched article. Now, I do want to give a quick content warning for brief but frank descriptions of slavery, as well as a mention of suicide. This snippet is about a minute and 30 seconds if you feel you need to skip ahead. This article was written by Mike Mariani, October 28th, 2015, and you can read the entire thing in the show notes. The zombie myth is far older and more rooted in history than the blinkered arc of American pop culture suggests. It first appeared in Haiti in the 17th and 18th centuries, when the country was known as Saint-Domingue and was ruled by France, which hauled in African slaves to work on sugar plantations. Slavery in Saint-Domingue under the French was extremely brutal. Half of the slaves brought in from Africa were worked to death within a few years, which led only to the capture and import of more. The original brains-eating fiend was a slave not to the flesh of others, but to his own. The zombie archetype, as it appeared in Haiti and mirrored the inhumanity that existed there from 1625 to around 1800, was a projection of the African slaves' relentless misery and subjugation. Haitian slaves believed that dying would release them back to Ian Guinea, literally Guinea or Africa in general, a kind of afterlife where they could be free. Though suicide was common among slaves, those who took their own lives wouldn't be allowed to return to Ian Guinea. Instead, they'd be condemned to skulk Hispaniola plantations for eternity. Undead slaves at once denied their own bodies and yet trapped inside them, soulless zombies. That snippet was from The Tragic Forgotten History of Zombies by Mike Mariani of The Atlantic, October 2015. You can read the entire article in the show notes. I will say that Mike is very critical of modern pop culture and how far it has strayed from the history of zombies. So don't, if you know, don't take the article as a indictment against your favorite work of zombie entertainment. The thing that I really care about here and that I try to impart on all of the lanterns is that it's important to learn history and be aware of history so you know why you enjoy what you enjoy and you're not just mindlessly consuming things. So I think George Romero did a great job of making people think about things like civil rights, Vietnam, consumer culture. And, you know, now when people make those types of critiques, uh, a lot of feedback is that horror is too woke. And why are we shoehorning messages into horror movies that are supposed to be mindless, fun entertainment? But 
This is not a 2022 issue. This is something that has been happening in film since the advent of film. Uh, it is an art form that's used to understand our society. And sometimes it can be silly entertainment, and sometimes it can be entertaining and also be really meaningful and thoughtful. And I do think that it is important to remember that George Romero didn't invent uh, zombies having some deeper meaning, that the true history of zombies is rooted in horrible societal failure. And you can't exactly separate one from the other as much as Hollywood has tried. I would love to hear from other lanterns who are passionate about zombies and connect you with Daniel. I have not done a history episode on zombies yet, which is one of the reasons I wanted to include the snippet from that article because I do think the history is really fascinating and very underknown, especially by Americans and white Americans at that. And I would love to give more than a minute and a half to that history on the show in the future. Daniel, thanks so much for this fantastic call and encouraging me to look a little deeper into zombies myself. Next up, we have two international eek mails about the holidays. say and spooky December to you. While I was putting up my Christmas decorations the other day and listening to your podcast, I thought it might be fun to tell you about a specific holiday figure we have where I live in northern Italy, specifically the region of Veneto. Her name is Befana. She's an old hag wearing dirty ripped clothes, a big black shawl, and she travels on a broomstick sort of like a witch, but not. Traditionally, her nose is big and some of her teeth are missing. Her hair is gray or white, all ruffled and covered in soot because she enters people's homes through the chimney. She stays hidden all year round and only soars in the sky during the nights between January 5th and 6th. That's her night, the time of year when she visits children. If you're good, you get a stocking full of candies, treats, and little gifts. If you've been bad, you get coal, garlic, and dried polenta, which is cornmeal mush. She's not evil, though, and it's believed even if you've been a little bit bad, if you leave some hot food for her, she might turn a blind eye on your misbehaving. <laughs> some hot soup should do, or a cup of milk with tasty biscuits. I remember one year when I was little and I knew I had been bad, I was terrified she'd come and scold me. My parents did a great job at telling me how the Bafana was disappointed and angry, and how she'd leave only stinky coal for me. I find it funny looking back at it now, but back then I was so sad and frightened. So what did I do? I left some milk and biscuits for her before going to bed, then hid under the duvet and waited and waited and waited until I fell asleep. The morning after, I woke up and ran to the kitchen, only to find the milk and biscuits were gone. And the Bafana did not leave coal for me, but treats and little gifts. I was so happy. And of course, so blissfully unaware of how much my dad enjoyed his milk and biscuits. <laughs> Last but not least, 
The Bafana tradition has been heavily influenced by Christianity over the years, but as with many festivities, its roots are definitely pagan. On the very same night of the Bafana, January 5th, it is customary to celebrate the Pani Vino, bread and wine. It consists of a huge bonfire atop of which a dummy with a hag appearance is placed. The dummy is called Visia, meaning old woman, and represents the past year that needs to be burned in order to make room for the new year. Then, predictions are made looking at the direction of the smoke coming from the bonfire. If it goes east, harvests will be plentiful. If it goes west, not so much. I love the podcast, and I'm wishing spooky holidays to all of you lovely lanterns. Manola Calistro. Manola, what a fantastic eek mail. Perfect for this time of year and just a little bit spooky. We love it. I did mention Bafana very, very briefly on our Creepmas Creatures episode last year uh, from December 21st. The reading that I had done at the time had sort of interchanged her with Frau Perchta, and I'm so happy to hear from you directly, an Italian on the streets who has actually celebrated the La Bafana traditions, because I think I misrepresented her in that Creepmas Creatures episode. I really loved hearing all about your experiences as a youngster, and of course, the fact that your parents were enjoying <laughs> not only lightly shaming you for being a bad kid, but also gobbling up all of the food that you left. <laughs> a classic experience that I think is held all around the world with different creatures being the ones to uh, punish or reward. <laughs> I also wanted to mention our Kitchen Witch episode from July 23rd of 2021. That was the first time uh, we ever heard from Grimtern Nathan. He was uh, not an intern at that time. He was a lantern. It was the first time that he reached out. And so he wrote in about Bafana. And I think it's so fun that we get to hear from you, Manola what the real experience is there. So thank you so much for taking the time to write such a fascinating, funny, and lively eek mail. I really enjoyed it, and I know that your fellow lanterns did too. I hope that Bafana brings you something special this year and leaves the stinky coal and garlic in her bag. What does she carry her stuff in? What kind of satchel? Santa Claus has, you know, a large sack. Does she carry a large sack on her broomstick? I'm always desperate to know about the accessories of witches. Okay, up next, another seasonal eek mail with the subject line, C-word curiosity. Hello, Luce. I was curious about your opinion on something. You've mentioned that you don't like a warm Halloween because of your preference for scary over sexy costumes, which I totally get. But I'm wondering how you feel about warm Christmases. 
I heard a lady speak recently about her experience moving from the UK to New Zealand and how she doesn't understand how people in the Southern Hemisphere have nothing to look forward to to get them through the winter months, usually June through August here. I grew up with scorching temperatures during the holidays, and as hard as cooking and baking is in that heat, I feel like I prefer the festivities and the vibe in the summer. Probably because I'm more alive in the summer anyways, so it just fits. But our winters in Melbourne were very mild, so I'm not sure. Having Christmas coming up was what we looked forward to in the winter. Our school year is also set up differently, so our end-of-the-year holidays are through the summer holiday period, so obviously there was a lot of fun to be had. How do you feel living in LA coming from a colder state? Can't wait for the next podcast episode in two weeks. Phew, you guys are killing us. Haha. <laughs> Love, Lantern, Sam. Sam, thank you so much for this perspective from Down Under. I think it's easy to forget that you guys have hot Christmas. I'm always talking about hot Halloween here in Los Angeles. And by the time that we get to December in L.A., it is winter here. However, our winter is temperatures in the 40s, which we love to joke about it being so cold, but it really does feel cold now that I've lived here for 10 years and I don't want it to get any colder. I don't miss Ohio. I don't miss the snow. When I want to get some snow, we drive to the mountains, which are about two hours away, and we can enjoy it for the day or for a weekend. I do like to snowboard and sled and ice skate and build snowmen. But I don't like being around the slush and the gray and the wind whipping across your face and ripping your skin off and crackling every single web between your fingers until you're bleeding. Oh, winter is actually the scariest time of year now that I'm thinking about it. But yeah, I don't miss it. And I like having a winter in L.A. where I can wear a stylish coat that I don't have to zip up. When I moved here, I finally understood in movies, Christmas movies, why people are always wearing open coats and jackets because they're not cold. <laughs> you can just have a stylish coat instead of like wrap yourself in 1000 layers to try to survive the walk from your car to the mall. I, I want a chilly Halloween, a hot Christmas and an overcast summer. I'm crazy. Thanks for this cute letter, Sam. It's always wonderful hearing from our international lanterns and getting a new perspective on things. I'm really happy that you're excited for the future episodes. I actually had to cut this Small Frights in half because I got overly ambitious and I put way more into it than uh, I was getting to be over an hour, so I split it. And so next month, Small Frights is almost ready to go. And Witches is also coming next month. So that's exciting. Sam is a Ghoul Gang member. But for the rest of the Lanterns who are getting eager about new episodes, as I said at the top, I do release two Patreon bonus episodes a month. It tends to be close to an hour of extras, including music by Pete Burns. And you can check that out at patreon.com slash it's always Halloween. Become a Patreon Ghoul Gang member and help us produce this show like Sam. 
Lanterns, I would love to hear how you are keeping this season creepy. And if you have any feedback about anything that you heard today or have any further questions or memories related to Halloween, please give us a call on the All Hallows hotline at 802-532-DEAD or drop us that eek mail at it's always Halloween podcast at gmail.com. This episode of It's Always Halloween was hosted by me, Luce Tomlin-Brenner, with help from your fellow lanterns, Casey, Linda, Daniel, Manola, and Sam. Many thanks for your fantastic contributions. The editing, theme music, and sound design is by Pete Burns. Thanks, Pete. Make sure to check out Pete's new album, Her April, now on Spotify under his artist name, P.B., you can follow the show on Instagram at It's Always Halloween Podcast, me on Instagram and Twitter at LTB Comedy, and Pete at Mittenberries. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and write us a little review so that other like-minded ghouls can find us. We got two wonderful reviews in November that I want to share with you now. First is from Shinobi Sean, and the headline is Favorite Comfort Podcast. I always turn to this podcast for both comfort and knowledge. Luce has a soothing voice. Aw, thank you, Shinobi Sean. I'm very happy to hear that I can soothe you. And the next one is from uh, maybe one of my favorite names on the reviews ever, Buttclit. This one with the subject line, so much more than a podcast. This show is medicine for sufferers of Halloween hangovers. It's so interesting, fun, cozy, and creepy. Luce and Pete have created a whole community around Halloween and the holiday's most fervent devotees. It's been great to witness how the podcast has evolved and gained so much support over such a short time. And it's well-deserved. Long live the lanterns! Ah! But Clit, I love this. I love your name. And I love Long Live the Lanterns. I'm thinking maybe we should put that design on a Redbubble t-shirt. Long Live Lanterns. It's pretty fantastic. Hey, thank you so much for these kind words. And sometimes I think that this podcast has been going on forever. And like I'm sure some of you do with your careers as well. Why aren't I further along? And why haven't I gotten to do all of the things that I want to do? And I had all these ideas and I haven't gotten to them yet. La, 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 la. You can be kind of hard on yourself, right? I can be hard on myself. So it's really great to look at words like gain so much support over such a short time. And it's like, yeah, two years is a pretty short time. Thank you for putting things into perspective, but Clit, you are very wise. And I appreciate the time that you took to write this thoughtful review. And Shinobi Sean, I appreciate the time that you took to just dash off something really sweet and meaningful that's going to grab people's attention. So Lanterns, if you haven't written us a review yet, we need one in December so people know that we're making podcasts all year round and this is not just a fall folly. So you can write something short and sweet like Shinobi Sean, or you can write something a little longer like Butt Clit. Either way, it's helpful. It touches me and Pete personally, but it also helps us find people who will enjoy the podcast like you do, and we can keep growing our porch. 
If you're not on Apple Podcasts, don't worry about it. Give us five stars on Spotify. And don't forget that we're also on the NPR One app, so you can subscribe there and tell Ira Glass that you love us. Thanks so much for listening to yet another episode of It's Always Halloween. And come back next time. Unless you use the phrase Frankenstein's monster to refer to the creature, then get out of here. You've learned nothing. Thank you.